God reached down to where we were. And it didn't matter how deep, it didn't matter how bad, it didn't matter how rotten. He didn't care. He just reached down as far as he had to reach. Praise his name. Let's sing the verse two. He placed me upon the strong rock by his side. My steps were established in our
But I would choose this song, Dylan. It's not three chords and a cloud of dust like I explained to Lady Jill earlier with the first song. But we've listened to Paul share his heart service after service. We've thought a lot about heaven this weekend. We've thought a lot about what a great, glorious moment it's going to be when we get there. Amen. Hopefully, especially young people, God has put a desire in your heart this weekend. We want to go to heaven. And I know it's unusual to, for the last congregational song of a revival to be song number 283 in your Sing to the Lord hymnal. But tonight I just wanted to end our congregational singing by singing, What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day. Glorious day that will be. Young people, one of these days you're gonna you're gonna be standing at the crossing of Jordan. We all are. And hopefully we're gonna point back to a time at an altar prayer when we said yes to Jesus. I can tell you this as a 19-year-old kid when I'm at the corner of Raymond and Southeastern and my life's blood's flowing out of my head because I just smashed the windshield. And I didn't know whether or not I'd make it to the hospital. And I was in really, really bad shape, but I was still very much awake. I'm sitting there on the curb, watching my blood go down the drain. And I'm thinking to myself, this may be it. But you know what I also knew? If it was, I was ready to go. <laughs> You and I can live with that kind of hope and promise every day of our lives. So I want us to sing this great song tonight. Let's sing it together.
spirit to praise the Lord Amen. and to seek his face. Amen. So if God just nudges your heart, let's obey him tonight. Let's seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Praise God. Brother Marshall, would you please come? He's going to lead us to the throne of grace. I'm sure we all have a special, a special request, unspoken request by uplifted hands. Amen. And let's pray for this service that God will continue to manifest his presence. Amen. Bless you. Bow our hearts together. Father God, we thank you again that we can come into your presence on this Sunday night. We're thankful for your love and grace that spread across our congregation here tonight and the moving of your Holy Spirit as we remind ourselves once again of the glorious day that that will be when we shall see your face and loved ones around the throne. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us in the service tonight, be with these young people as they are here that they would feel that sense of moving of the Holy Spirit and move towards you. And Lord, wherever you uh, call us there, we will be at your feet. Lord, I pray that we would just come willingly before you tonight. Be with us in this service. Draw us close to you. We thank you for uh, the moving of your Holy Spirit throughout these services and how you've blessed us. Lord, be with us tonight. In Jesus' precious name. You may be seated. We are so glad you are here. Our last night of our youth revival. I'm looking forward to what the Lord has in store for us. I've enjoyed the service thus far. You know, isn't God good to us? Helps, comes, and blesses us so much. Our ushers are on their way forward to take our last evening ties and time.
Well, just a few quick announcements tonight. Once again, if you have your bulletin still, you can look at that. And if not, then I will remind you of a few quick things here. February the 26th, this coming Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. is uh, the annual update on budget, renovations, and all important things here at the church. Everyone is invited to come and be here for that. March the 7th, it's uh, 10 a.m. Sisters of Strength Craft, which is hosted by Amber Murdick. If you have any questions, see Amber Murdick about that, and she can answer any questions that you have. Uh, March the 12th, time, TMB. Remember that stands TBD, that stands for tacos, bacon, and donuts, okay? Time to be determined. <laughs> Once again, I still like my version better. <laughs> Sisters of Strength, that's on March the 12th, time to be determined, Sisters of Strength. Uh, our new pastor will be meeting with the ladies over popcorn, sodas, and water, and etc. Let's show him our strength, and uh, further details will be provided. March the 15th at 10.45 a.m., we'll be having a special installation service here in the church. Uh, Brother Chris Cravens will be here, uh, be joining us, and we will officially, he will officially welcome Brother Don Bates to, as the senior pastor here at the church, and there will be other special guests too that will be joining us for this event, and once again, additional details will be forthcoming. So then we also have another NCS fundraiser that will be taking place on Friday, March the 20th, Saturday, March the 21st from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Friday, and on Saturday from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, there will be an auction, there will be food, there will be all different kinds of things. So uh, keep, your, keep your ears open for, the, for more announcements about this also, because we will be announcing it in the very, very near future. Well, thank you for your, your time tonight, and I believe that's all the announcements that we have.
praise His name. Praise God. Praise His name. Praise God. Praise God. Michael, why don't you just fade that out? Sing with me. So I'll cherish the
story of the young musical phenom that he is becoming. Luke Gardner, would you say amen? Amen. Thank you. That was very, very good. And I understand you come and put old dad in his place and said, you want to do that by yourself tonight. I guess I can't blame you. Know? It was very good, but thank you. Well, Brother Paul's getting ready to preach to us, but someone suggested that he play something on the piano before he preaches. Would that be okay? Yeah. He's not half bad on the piano. I know. And I'm going to go down there and chain myself to the pew so I don't race up here and grab a microphone and start singing while he's playing. The piano. <laughs> I have so much enjoyed uh, him being with us. And Paul, thank Amen. You. Thank you for agreeing to do this. I don't know that we would have thought it would have happened and God intervened and helped you and I'm very, very grateful. And God has used him. Young people, if you enjoyed Paul's preaching, would you say amen? Yeah. Amen. And I know the Lord's going to use him again tonight. And so he's going to play the piano for us and then he's going to preach to us. So let's give him our undivided attention. God bless you, Lord.
sighs and grunts and whatever else that you weren't supposed to hear. So uh, there are lots of preacher stories where guys got in trouble with these microphones. Either put them on early or left them on late. Oh my goodness. I said the Lord being my helper, I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> so Oh, it has been so good to be with all of you. It's been so good to be back at Beach Grove. And as I've said, I've been here many, many times. And I've always enjoyed being here. I've always enjoyed, one of the things I've always enjoyed about this place, ever since the first time I came here, which would have been, I don't know, maybe even the late 90s, um, I, I just have always enjoyed the spirit of worship that's been here and the spirit of freedom and liberty that's here where people just verbalize and vocalize their praise to God unabashedly. And it's like George Yonts used to say, some churches you go to and they sit there and look at you like a mule looking at a new gate. <laughs> but you all don't do that and I'm thankful. You know, he's worthy of our praise. And if our dignity is more important than being able to praise God, we've got a problem. I think it's the most beautiful thing in the world when people praise the Lord. There's nothing undignified about it as long as it's done in the spirit, as long as it puts the focus on Jesus and not you or me. It's a beautiful thing. And I've enjoyed worshiping with you this weekend. And I thank you for the spirit of worship that has been here. I want to thank Pastor Bates for inviting me to come. It sounds really weird for me to be saying Pastor Bates. Because <laughs> he's always Don or Donnie. <laughs> but uh, I do thank him for inviting me to come. As I said, this was the first time that I had preached, uh, as far as Friday night is concerned, it was the first time I had preached uh, since my life changed dramatically. And I frankly was very uncertain about this, very uncertain as to whether or not I could keep it together, but God has really, really been beside me and has helped me. And you all have prayed for me, and I really thank you for that. I really, really thank you for that. I also want to thank the Lord particularly and specifically for His help. You know, one of the things that I've learned in the past 13 weeks is how nothing I am and how everything he is. And that is not a cliche. I'm not just saying spiritual church talk when I say that. That is the absolute truth. And I can say that with passion and conviction because I know that. I know that for a fact. God allowed me in that first 20 hours that I described to you this morning to experience what it's like to be completely broken. And then he picked me up. And when he picked me up, I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that I was nothing and he was everything. And I can't tell you what that's done for my faith. My faith and my trust in God is just so much stronger than it's ever been in the past. And I have nothing but praise and thanks to our wonderful Lord. Oh, I just worship him tonight. I wish, I wish I could put into words. And over and over, I, 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 I pray hymns. Often, I just, I love hymns, I love Christian songs, and I have a knack for remembering the words to these songs, and so I pray them to God in my prayer time. 
And the one that I have prayed over and over and over in these last 13 weeks has been, had I a thousand tongues to sing, the half could not be told. Of love so rich, so full, so free, of blessings manifold, of grace that faileth never. <laughs> Peace flowing as a river from God, the glorious gift. To Him be thanks, to Him be thanks. Praise the Lord. And that's my testimony tonight. I just want to thank and praise God for the grace that He's given me. I want to tell you something. The only reason I'm standing here is because of that wonderful grace of Jesus. If it hadn't been for Him picking me up in that 20 hours of what I very carefully and very purposefully refer to as hell on earth. I'm not saying that flippantly. I'm not using that as a byword. I'm using that literally. It was hell on earth. And God came and picked me up. And if he hadn't, I would have been locked up in a psych ward somewhere. I'll guarantee you. It's only by God's grace that I'm standing here today. And I owe everything to him. And I just praise him and worship him. And I love him. I didn't intend to start out this sermon this way. But that's okay. Because I'm getting it off my chest. It's on my heart. And I just want to share it with you. Praise God. Give Him honor and glory and praise because He alone is worthy. Amen. Amen. So I thank Brother Bates for inviting me to come. I thank uh, all of you who have worked so hard to put on this revival. The cooks, those who organize the activities, you've done such a wonderful job. It's so refreshing to see a church that's very purposeful about saving your young people. That's a wonderful thing. I commend you. And I encourage you, keep pressing on, keep, keep on keeping on, keep doing what you're doing to save your young people. What a fine looking group up here again tonight. And what a great group we've had throughout the week. So I thank you for attending the services, for praying, and for worshiping. And I also want to thank uh, Brother Vore. He has put up with me, he's, he's let me use his, his uh, Escalade. And I felt like a big wig driving down the road. <laughs> I said, this is way above my pay grade. I actually drive an Escalade back home, but it's a 2002 and it has 275,000 miles on it. And I paid $2,400 for it. So, <laughs> so I got a massive upgrade this week. And then this afternoon, I was going to make a hospital visit for, to a friend of our family who had just came through serious surgery. And uh, he threw the keys at me of his Corvette. Oh, man. So I got behind the wheel of that beautiful machine. And, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny my adherence to the speed limit. <laughs> Confession is good for the soul. So I'm going to say I broke it. But not very much. Well... <laughs> church over in Greenfield, the Greenfield Wesleyan Church. They have a prophet's chamber over there, and different times throughout the summers, uh, they have allowed me to use that. I've taken groups there, and we've all stayed there together. They have a couple of rooms there, and uh, on this particular occasion, I was there with a quartet, and I had gotten up early in the morning, as I typically do. I'm an early riser, 
Uh, it's a Stetler man, Stetler man trait. The Stetler women all sleep in in the morning. Well, they don't, but they'd like to. <laughs> but the Stetler men all wake up with the chickens, and uh, whether we want to or not. And so I was up early, and I was praying, and I like to walk when I pray. And I was walking around the church. They have a parking lot and then a driveway that goes all the way around the church. And so I was just making those circles again and again as I was praying and as the sun was coming up. And as I circle around toward the rear of the church, it's an area that not many people would frequent, uh, walk back there or drive back there even. And uh, I was walking along and I heard this strange little sound, this little whine, kind of a whimper. And I thought, well, that's an odd sound. And I started to follow it to try to locate the source of it. And I discovered that that church has window wells. Now, we don't have window wells in Florida. <laughs> we have a high water table. So basements aren't too common in Florida. But you all have a lot of basements up here. And those basements often have window wells, which is like a half circle. Often it's a piece of galvanized metal. And it keeps the dirt from piling up against the window and allow some light to come down into the basement, and that's what they have there at that church. And those window wells are fairly deep, I would say maybe a couple of feet deep. And I realized that the source of that sound was something down in that window well. And so I walked over there and I, I peeked down in, and what I saw was a little black kitten and that kitten had stumbled down in that window well and had tried and tried his best to claw his way out, but he couldn't get any traction on that galvanized metal. And so he was stuck down there. Now by the look of him, he'd been down there for quite a bit. By the sound of him, he'd been down there for quite a while. His, his cry had, had uh, sort of settled down to a whimper and he was looking very thin. He was probably dehydrated. And so my immediate response, even though I'm not a cat lover, I'm sorry, cat people, I'm just not. You know, scientists tell us that if your house cat was as big as a tiger, it would eat you. <laughs> what does that say about the nature of a cat? They say dogs have owners and cats have humans. Anyhow. <laughs> but I was touched by the predicament of this little kitten Kittens are cute, you gotta admit that. Even if you hate cats, kittens are cute. And so I looked down and, and my heart went out to this little cat, so I immediately began to reach my hand out and oh, was that ever a mistake. <laughs> oh my goodness. That little dehydrated, shrimpy cat that was whimpering suddenly arched his little back and the hair stood up on his neck and he bared his teeth and he began to hiss at me and he put up a little paw and I saw those claws <laughs> just extend right out of that claw, right out of that paw. And I said to myself, oh my, <laughs> I'm faced with a decision. Am I going to risk my own skin to save this cat or am I going to turn and walk away and leave him to his own devices? Now you know there's an irony to this little story because that cat was calling for help. And most likely, 
I was the only person that could help that cat. It was the middle of the week. Probably nobody else would be around there until Sunday. And by that time, that cat would be dead. And so I was his only source of salvation. And yet somehow, in his little feline brain, he had become convinced that I was the enemy. He had become convinced that I was a greater threat than the starvation and dehydration that he was already feeling the effects of. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? His one source of salvation, he had become convinced, was a greater threat than the starvation and dehydration that he was already feeling the effects of. That really kind of boggles my mind. Does it yours? Now, sometimes I've left it right there. <laughs> but I'm going to go ahead and tell you what happened so that you won't be mad at me. I actually cheated. I could tell you that I was the great sacrificial savior and stuck my hand down and got all scratched up and pulled him out of his predicament. I didn't. I took a stick and I stuck it up under his little belly and flicked him out of to draw us to yourself, 
Lord, may we walk in the light as you are in the light. And may we find your promise to be true, that if we do, we'll have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us from all sin. For all that you do, we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question tonight. What is hell? What is hell? Well, the Bible gives us some insight into what hell is. Revelation 21.8 says it's a place for the cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice the magic arts, idolaters, liars. It describes it as a fiery lake of burning sulfur. It calls it the second death. Wow. That's sobering, isn't it? You don't pull that verse out of your promise box. And yet we don't talk about these things enough. And I fear that we're losing our fear of the potential of eternal damnation. Friends, I'm disturbed that at every funeral these days and on every tribute that gets posted on Facebook, somehow everybody winds up in the arms of Jesus. But friends, that's not what the Bible says. I'm not here to terrorize anyone who's lost a loved one. You know I lost my wife 13 weeks ago, but what you may not know is that a month before that I also lost a cousin. And he was on a motorcycle. And he was killed in an accident. We were not, not very hopeful as to the, his state when the accident occurred. But I'll tell you what I told his grieving mother. He had an hour before he passed. And when the EMTs arrived, he was still responsive. He was still coherent. He was carrying on conversation. And I told his grieving mother, my aunt, I said, you have to remember something. God wants us in heaven more than we want to go there. And God had an hour to deal with that boy's heart. We took that boy to youth camp. He heard the gospel. And my hope and prayer is that in that window of time, when he realized that his life was slipping away, that somehow got a hold of his, God got a hold of his heart Amen. and he made it to heaven. But folks, the unpleasant reality is not everybody goes to heaven. There is a devil's hell. It was not created for us. It was created for Satan and his imps. But it's a reality. And it's a horrifying reality. And there are no fancy words that we can use to gloss over the ugly, stark reality of hell. Matthew 13, 50 calls it a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Second Thessalonians tells us, we'll be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Mark 9, 43 says it's a place where the fire never goes out. Matthew 25, 46 says it's a place of eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. 
Matthew 25, 41 says it's an eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is an awful, awful warning to every one of us that it's deadly serious that we make our peace with God and that we be ready when death knocks on our door. I told my Wednesday night prayer meeting of students in our first meeting after the accident, I said, guys and girls, be ready. My wife and I had absolutely no warning. It was in a split second. And I want to thank my Heavenly Father from the depths of my heart that there was not a single doubt in my mind that Jacinda was ready to meet Jesus. I had talked to her two days before. She and I had had a conversation about our devotional lives. Since that time, I've looked through some of her stuff and she wrote the references day after day after day in her daytime. This is what I studied. These were my praises. This is what I drew from the reading. She loved Jesus. She had a hunger for God. And I'm so thankful for that. Oh, I can't tell you the reassurance that brings me. But friends, be ready. Because we know neither the day nor the hour when our name is going to be called. But what is hell? The Bible uses all of these descriptions. It uses all of this pictorial language to paint a picture of what hell is. The great poet Dante, in his epic poem Inferno, painted a word picture of hell. And it's beautiful in the sense that it's incredible words and poetry. But it's horrible in the sense of the picture that it depicts. But one of the things that he describes is the archway over heaven over which is inscribed the words, Abandon hope all who enter here. I found that to be an intriguing word picture. And I think after reading the scripture and studying this topic of hell, that may I dare to challenge the wording of the great poet Dante and inscribe over that archway instead the words, have it your own way. You see, God wants us to go to heaven. The last thing God would ever want is for any person, any human being, any person that he created lovingly and purposefully, any person for whom he shed his precious blood on Calvary, the last thing that God would ever want is for a person to go to hell. It is not God's will. The Bible says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is God's will. But somehow, friends, in our minds, we have established this idea. 
that God is out to harm us, that God is a killjoy, that God is trying to prevent us from having fun, that God doesn't want us to have any friends, that God doesn't want us to be cool, that God doesn't want us to dress nicely or drive cool cars or live in nice houses, that God just wants us to mope around and be miserable all the time and just fast and pray until Jesus comes. And folks, that's a lie of Satan. That's an absolute lie of Satan. God is the giver of joy. <laughs> He's the source of joy. He's the giver of peace. But somehow, God has been depicted by Satan, who is the father of lies, as being a killjoy. Someone who's out to spoil all of our fun. And so just like that little kitten, arching its back at me is only Savior. We look at God and we say, no, not your will, my will. <clears throat> and over the course of our lives, God will try again and again and again and again yes. to reach out to us, to invite us, to draw us, to woo us to himself. He's like a lover wooing us. He wants us. And yet so many continue to resist. And what this verse tells us is that there's coming a time when God will say, have it your own way. You see, the worst possible thing I could have done for that kitten is to look at that kitten and say, have it your own way, and turn and walk away and leave that kitten in the window well to starve to death. That's the worst thing I could possibly have done. And yet, the scripture tells us that there's coming a time when God will honor our personhood, God will honor our free moral agency, and he will finally say, have it your own way. And that, my friends, is the most frightening thought that could ever occur to the human mind. How many of you like rules? Do you like rules? No. I talked to you a little bit ago about the speed limit. Who, who likes the speed limit? <laughs> well, a couple of you who aren't driving yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, we typically don't like rules, do we? But have you ever stopped to think that rules serve a purpose? Has that ever occurred to you? How many of you like the Outback Steakhouse? Any of you? Yeah, most of you. Do you remember a slogan they used to have that said, no rules, just right? How many of you remember that slogan for Outback? Yep. That slogan used to just amuse the daylights out of me. Because I thought to myself, what if I took that literally? What if I pulled up, parked in the handicapped space, and barged my way in past the line of people, barged right past the hostess desk, and went into the dining room, and walked up to a table filled with people eating their dinner, and said, all right, time for you guys to leave. I'm going to eat here. And start shoving their plates off the table. What if I did that? They would come rushing in, sir, 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 there's a line out here. You have to wait for your table. And you certainly can't evict these people from their tables and stop shoving their food off on the floor. 
And I would say, a sign out front said, no rules, just write. And I'm right hungry, so I'm going to eat right now. <laughs> How long could Outback Steakhouse survive? It's a joke, my friends. You couldn't live without rules. <laughs> How'd you like to go to a high school that had no rules? <laughs> high school was tough enough with the rules that we had, wasn't it? You know, how many of you'd like to play a basketball game with no rules? <laughs> Somebody cuts in front of you and you just knock them out cold. Game over. <laughs> how many of you'd like to drive on an interstate highway with no traffic laws? Survival of the fittest. <laughs> Even the Autobahn in Germany has rules. <laughs> No, you know what this world would become if all rules were taken away? You know what it would become? Hell. Literally. That's what it would be. Literal hell. Rules keep this world that we live in from being hell. Did you ever stop to think about that? Rules are what keep this world from being hell. Because you want what you want, and I want what I want, and invariably, at some point, those two desires are going to collide. And in order to keep us from killing each other, there's got to be some rules, right? That's why we have courts of law. That's why we have law enforcement. That's why we have a constitution. God has given us rules. He's given us this book that has some rules. We've got the Ten Commandments. Many, many other admonitions and exhortations in the Scripture. Thank God for rules. Rules keep this world from becoming hell. Well, if rules are what keep it from becoming hell, then rules must be a really good thing. You know, maybe, maybe if we just had enough rules, it'd be heaven. Do you think? <laughs> well, the Pharisees had that idea. And you know, it didn't work out for them so well. They thought, well, if we, rules are a good thing, and yes, they are. And did you know that the Pharisees began as a reform movement? Their idea, the very concept that, the, that founded the Pharisees as a movement was they said, we want to build a hedge around the Torah. The Torah was the Mosaic law, the God-given, God-inspired, God-breathed scripture. In fact, Jesus said of the Pharisees, he said, as long as they're preaching Moses, listen to them. That's the truth. <laughs> but they, they said, we want to build a hedge around the Torah to keep people from even getting close to breaking the law. And so they began to add rules and add rules and add rules and add rules. So Moses said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And on the seventh day, you shall do no work, he said. And so they said, okay, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So what is work? Can you build a fire on the Sabbath? How about, uh, now I'm not kidding you. This is actual rabbinic law. How about the weight of your shoes? Is, is it work to lift heavy shoes on the Sabbath? 
They actually had regulations about the kind of tax that you could use in the manufacturing of shoes that would be worn on the Sabbath. They actually had this thing where, you know, in town, a lot of the houses came right up to the street and uh, the beggars would come along with their cans and they would shake them outside the windows and people of means would stick their hand out and drop coins into the beggars' coffers. And they legislated that it was work to reach out and drop the coin in on the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, the poor beggars, I guess they were in bad shape anyway, so it didn't matter. They had to do the work of sticking their can in your window so you could drop the coin in. That's not a joke, friends. The Pharisees went to seed on rules. <coughs> we have some modern-day Pharisees around, don't you? <laughs> oh, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> what did Jesus say about the Pharisees? Matthew 23, 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Now hang on a second. I thought rules were supposed to keep earth from becoming hell. Well, yes, they do. But rules will not make this world heaven. And rules will not make you a child of heaven. And in fact, rules that are crafted with ulterior motives will make you a child of hell. You see, the Pharisees used rules as a political tool to increase their own power and influence and to repress the people. So rules are not the answer. What's the problem here? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, made this statement. It was very controversial. A lot of people took him to task, but I agree with it 100%. He said, hell is a state of mind. Now, by that, he did not mean that there is not a location called hell. The Bible tells us that there is. What he meant was that what precipitated the creation of hell to begin with was a spirit of rebellion. A spirit that says, I want my own way. And do you realize... That is why hell was created. Hell was created as a place of containment. God did the world a favor when he created hell. Hell was a place of containment for Satan and the third of the angelic host that he convinced to agree with him and follow him. God cast them out of heaven and hell was created for Satan and his angels. Hell was created as a place of containment for these rebellious beings who rejected the will of God and each wanted his own way. And when you have each wanting his own way, what you have is chaos and pandemonium and ultimately hell. That, my friends, is the problem. Inscribed over the gateway of hell in my imagination, is the phrase, have it your own way.
Matthew 23, 12, Jesus said, And whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. The Pharisees exalted themselves, made themselves the rule giver. Satan exalted himself. He became a competitor to God. That's a laughable thought, isn't it? But somehow he managed to convince a third of God's angels to join him in his folly. And that's why we have hell today. That's why we have temptation today. Hell is a state of mind. But did you catch the second part of that verse? The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. Well, that's hopeful, isn't it? A good man will be satisfied from above. This verse is talking about heaven. Now, we've asked the question, what is hell? We've determined that it is a place that is characterized by rebellion against the will of God. It's the place where God finally consigns those who insist upon having their own way. What is heaven? Well, my friends, heaven is the opposite. If we had an inscription over the gate of heaven, I think it would say, Thy will be done. You see, Jesus gave us a clue to this in the Lord's Prayer that he taught us all to say. All of you know it by heart. What did he say? He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the defining characteristic of heaven? That it is the place where God's will is done. It's the place where God's will is done. It's the place where we don't need any law enforcement. It's the place where we don't need any judicial system. It's the place where no one ever sues anyone. No one ever gets in an argument. No one ever gets in a fight. Why? Because we all have the same desire. We all want His will to be done. Hallelujah. Paul said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That, my friends, is the essence of heaven. All of us being of one mind. Won't that be beautiful? No more disagreements. No more arguments. No more one-upmanship. No more competition. No more striving to outdo the other. No more politicking and trying to make other people look bad. No, we all have the same desires. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's the essence of heaven. What makes heaven heaven? The fact that we're all in unity with the will of God. Revelation 21, 10 and through 27 describes heaven as a great city, a holy Jerusalem. It has the glory of God. It says her light is like a precious jasper stone, clear as crystal. It's a city of gold with streets of gold, so pure it's like glass. It says it has walls of jasper, foundations of precious stones. It has gates of pearl. There's no temple because God is the temple. 
There's no need of sun or moon because the glory of God, the Lamb, is the light of it. There's no night. There's no defilement. There's no abomination. There are no lies. There's no cancer. There's no war. There's no starvation. There's no divorce. There's no abuse. Hallelujah. There will be no sorrow there. No more burdens to bear. No more sickness, no pain, no more parting over there. And forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day. What a glorious day that will be. Hallelujah. <laughs> but the only way that can happen, friends, is if we surrender to God's will. You see, heaven starts on this earth. Jesus, when he was praying his high priestly prayer, that is, he was praying on behalf of his apostles to his heavenly father. He gave us a clue as to what eternal life is. He said, and this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What is the essence of eternal life that begins here on earth? It's a relationship with God. It's knowing him, knowing him intimately and personally, loving him, serving him, obeying him, abandoning ourselves to his will. Oh, friends, that's a wonderful place to be when all has been placed on the altar. And we can truly sing, I surrender all. When we're totally consecrated to the will of God, then we become a child of heaven. Hallelujah. If God allowed people who were not surrendered to his will into heaven, hell would result. Amen? The only way heaven can be heaven is if God draws the line and he says, in order to come, you've got to submit to my will. You've got to submit to my will. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All who are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find. Those who knock, it is open. Thank the Lord. I want to be amongst those to whom who have said to God thy will be done. Don't you? You know I have a brand new perspective on heaven. I was talking to one of our students the other day and she was talking about Jacinda's passing. And she said, Paul, it has changed my life. And she's one of many. It has touched thousands of people, more people than I'm even aware of. But she's one of them. And she said, it has changed my life. And she talked about how it had given her passion for her calling, for teaching, because Jacinda had been a teacher and she mentioned this and she mentioned that and several other things. She knew Jacinda very well. But one thing that she said that really touched me, all of it touched me, but this in particular was, she said, you know, up until now, and she's about 20 years old, she said, up until now, 
heaven has seemed like a place for old people. <laughs> she said, I've, I've seen old saints, old saints pass on to glory. And she said, I love the thought of them being there and someday seeing them again. But it just seemed like something I couldn't relate to. But she said, when someone that I was so close to went to be with Jesus in heaven, suddenly, she said, it came alive to me. And she said, now I can picture myself there. And I thought, hallelujah. <laughs> and I think the same. You know, I've, I've never really related to heaven songs as much as I should have. Oh, I've loved heaven songs. They're sweet. They're sentimental. We cry. Beulah land, I'm longing for you, and someday on thee I'll stand. There my home shall be eternal. Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. Who hasn't sung that and lifted a hand and shed a tear? <laughs> it's a wonderful song. But oh, I want to tell you, there's a whole lot deeper meaning to that song now. Amen. There's a whole lot deeper meaning to that song. What a day that will be that we sang today. All the tears just rolled down my face as we sang that. Because I am anticipating that day. I am living for that day. Hallelujah. When Jacinda and I together will be in the presence of Jesus. Oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait to go to heaven. What a wonderful place it's going to be. But you know, God lets us enjoy a little bit of heaven on this earth. I talked to you just a little bit about that on Friday night. The fact that in his presence is fullness of joy. And I quoted that wonderful old song that our song leader used to lead. Oh, hallelujah. Yes, tis heaven. Tis heaven to know my sins forgiven. On land or sea, what matters where? Where Jesus is. Tis heaven there. Praise the Lord. We can enjoy a little bit of heaven on earth. I remember when my grandpa Stepper was on his deathbed. Grandpa and grandma died one month to the day apart. Grandpa died first. She died exactly one month later. They were both in hospital beds. She was in a bed over in this side of the room, and she actually was less coherent than he was. And he was over on this side of the room in his hospital bed. He had cancer, and he was in pain, and he had been receiving pain medication. And just about 48 hours before he passed, I was in the room with him. My aunt came in, and we said, why don't we move the furniture around and roll that bed? We sensed that he was approaching the end. Why don't we roll that bed over by her bed? And so we started moving things around and we pushed that bed over by hers. And when we got him over there, he hadn't spoken to us the entire day. He hadn't even acknowledged us the entire day. But when we got him over next to grandma, he came to and he realized that she was there. And I'll never forget that scene as long as I live. He was feeble, but he looked over at her and he reached down and he took the sheet that was on him and very slowly he began to put it over on her. <laughs> that was my sweet grandpa. He prayed that the Lord would let him live long enough to see her through to the end. And God answered that prayer within a month. But he reached over and put that sheet over on her. And then very painstakingly, he got as close as he could to her ear. And I began to hear a murmur. And I leaned down. 
and I listened, and you know what I heard? I heard my grandpa in a voice that was racked with pain, in a voice that was so soft because he was so feeble, a voice that was singing, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. <laughs> I stood there and wept like a baby because here was a man whose body was racked with pain. Here was a woman who had been in the fog of dementia for many months and even a year or more at that time. And they should have been miserable. They should have been disgusted by earthly standards. But what was he doing? He was singing, what a day. <laughs> what a glorious day. Oh, what a hope we have, folks. What a hope we have in Jesus Christ. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm destined for a better place. A place where there's no more night, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more parting. And the Lamb is the light. Hallelujah. Now I see through a glass darkly, but then face to face I shall behold Him. In all of His glory, in all of His power, in all of His majesty, in all of His beauty. I think of what John saw, the revelation of the ascendant Christ seated on the throne, surrounded by angels and archangels singing, surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before and have successfully completed their journey. And what are they singing? They're singing the song of the redeemed. They're singing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and glory and dominion and strength. Oh, I love it when we sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Don't you love the Hallelujah Chorus? And I love that passage that says the kingdom of this world is become, boom, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. 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 <laughs> Praise the Lord. Do you want to go there, friends? Oh, I sure want to go there. I want to go to that place of perfect peace and perfect rest, perfect harmony, perfect unity, because we all want His will. I ask you tonight, friend, are you a child of heaven? Or, you ha or have you let the devil play tricks on your mind, just like that little cat? arching your back, baring your teeth, extending your little claws and saying, step back, I'm going to do it my way. God help us. Young people, don't fall for that lie of Satan. It's a trap. It's a trick. Satan wants to destroy your life. God wants to make your life beautiful and joyful and fulfilled. And he's offering you heaven. <coughs> But he says, in order to come, you've got to do it my way, Amen. not my will that thine be done. Amen. You know, in the aftermath of the accident, God walked me down a path as I processed what took place. And he answered some of my questions and he asked me some questions. But in about a six step process, he brought me to a point of peace and rest and acceptance and understanding. Now, I'm not gonna tell you all of those six steps. I wish I had time tonight, but I don't. But I wanna tell you about the fifth one. 
The fifth step changed my life. I was praying one morning and I said, Lord, I accept the fact that you are real and that your promises are true. You've stood by me. I accept the fact that this accident was really no accident, that this was a part of your plan. I accept the fact that you have taken my wife from this world and that she is in heaven and she's rejoicing in your presence and she's happier than she's ever been. I accept the fact that this was all part of your divine plan, but Lord, why did it have to be me driving? Why did it have to be me who fell asleep? Why did it have to be my fault? And you know what? The Lord answered my question. He answered me as real and as definitely as I'm speaking to you tonight. Not audibly, but in my mind. He very matter-of-factly said, Paul, I gave you a gift. He said, if it had been something or someone else, you would have had occasion to become angry and bitter at me. But because I let it be your fault, you cast yourself on my mercy and that put you in a place where I could help you. I want to tell you something, friends, whether you realize it or not. That is mighty profound stuff right there. I stood right in the middle of the road and I bawled like a baby. I was out exercising and I stopped power walking when God started talking. And I just stood there in the middle of the street early in the morning and wept like a child. The people in those houses, if they'd seen me, would have probably called the cops and said, we've got a crazy man on our hands out here. But you know why I wept like a baby? Because it all made so much sense. And what I realized and what I have realized numerous times since then is that in these crisis moments, in the moments when we need him most, Satan's most deadly tactic is to try to drive a wedge between us and the only source of help we have. Jesus was all I had. And Satan was trying to drive a wedge. But God said, <laughs> I gave you a gift. And oh, when God spoke to me like that, I can't tell you the sensation of gratitude, of worship, and of praise that swept over me. Because suddenly in that moment, I realized that what was in my mind the most painful thing of my life was in fact one of God's greatest gifts. Hallelujah. God was keeping the channel clear between me and my only source of help. Young people, the devil will play that trick on you too. The devil will try to convince you that God is out to get you. That God doesn't have your best interest at heart. That God's trying to spoil all of your fun. But I want to tell you this evening. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the one who stands by you. He's the one who will walk with you in your darkest valley. He is the one who will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the one who will give you joy and happiness and peace and heaven. Hallelujah. Let's stand together.